We are recording, and podcast begins in three, two, one. Hey again, everybody, and welcome to episode six of Pith and Moment, a podcast for all things Shakespeare. My name's Kyle Downing. I'm a Shakespeare coach in New York City, and I'm here with Elena Robertson, who has her master's degree in theater studies. How are you doing today, Elena? What's going on? I'm doing well, thank you. It's a beautiful day in Washington, D.C. Yeah, right on. Um, why don't you take this time to tell the listeners a little bit about you before we get started? All right. Uh, well, I just recently, this past December, graduated from the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. Uh, they boast alumni like Laurence Olivier, so that's cool. Uh, my course, I studied academic and economic sides of theater. So personally, I studied Richard II for my dissertation while also learning about theater development. So I will soon be working at the Shakespeare Theater in a couple of weeks as their uh, professional professional development fellow. Congratulations on the new job, by the way. That's awesome. So our subject of the podcast today is Richard II, one of not not one of the most popular blockbuster Shakespeare plays, but an interesting one nonetheless because it does. Um, start the whole uh, Henry cycle, right? It's a prequel to Henry IV, Part One, and that trilogy of Henry plays. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. It, it, it ends in 1399, so just about 100 years before Elizabeth's father came to power. Okay. So um, the, the most interesting thing, I guess, to start off talking about then is... Uh, Richard II is, as we discussed before the podcast started, and as I just recently learned, one of four plays that are written entirely in verse. So what are some of the reasons that it might be written entirely in verse, and or like, what are some of the implications, or what does that cause? Uh, well, it's uh, there's no definite answer that you can find to that. Sure. What... I have found is when I was doing my research on the play that the verse is used very specifically. And I think Shakespeare probably just said it to prove that he could, honestly. <laughs> this was right after Marlowe debuted blank verse with Edward II. So, and this takes place just a few years after Edward II, Edward III, and then Richard II. So... I think Shakespeare just wanted to prove that he could do a play entirely in blank and rhyming verse. And there's a specific moment when, spoiler alert, when King Richard is killed, that the rest of the play uh, is entirely in rhyming verse. Oh. It goes in uh, in about Act 5, Scene 3, I believe it is. There is, I have it specifically, in Act 5... Scene five, Richard is killed, and from that moment on, everything is rhyming couplets. Wow, so that, I mean, it's not a, a vast majority of the play, but it's it's interesting because at that point, I guess everything just becomes heightened in its own specific way, and based on the death of this king, yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the blank verse within this play is very speech-like, and blank verse is usually used by common classes, whereas the 
upper classes will fade in and out of blank verse and rhyming verse. I found the point, by the way. Um, Richard II says, How now, what means this death in rude assault? Villain, thy own hand yields thy death's instrument. Um, and a very specific stage direction, snatching an axe from a servant and killing him. Go thou and fill another room in hell. So this, is, this guy's not going quietly. Like, this is out with a bang. It says he kills another, then Exton strikes him down. Um, and then he says, that hand shall burn in never quenching fire. Looking and then it. we have, that staggers thus my person. Exton, thy fierce hand hath with the king's blood stained the king's own land. Two more lines and he dies. Yep. And entire play after that is rhyming verse. Yeah. So that's what... Yeah, all basically all of scene six at Windsor Castle with Henry Bolingbroke, Northumberland, Lord Fitzwater, and Henry Percy and Exton. So interesting because Shakespeare, first of all, I mean Shakespeare uses blank verse with his noble characters um, more often than not, and the the prose is usually reserved for either less heightened moments or the less um, noble characters in the play. Like, for example, we don't see Falstaff talking in a whole lot of blank verse, and yeah. especially not many rhyming couplets. But I've always felt like there are a couple different levels to heightenedness in Shakespeare's plays, right? There's regular prose, then there's blank verse, and then there's blank verse with an increasing amount of poetic devices, like anytime I see a lot of like anaphora or hyperbaton or anadiplosis or any of those other various things, if you listeners, if you um, if you don't know what those words mean, you can look them up. Uh, hand list of rhetorical terms on Google. Um, but anything that's littered with a lot of poetic devices and then um, rhyming verse with a bunch of poetic devices is at the very top of that. I've always felt. So what does it tell us that all these noble characters are speaking in rhyming verse through the entire last act of the play? Well, rhyme was expected in the early modern era. Rhyme is not technically new. Mm -hmm. Shakespeare just made it a lot more, uh, well, made sense of it, as it were. It's really just uh, a device in a way so that he can specify and catch listeners ear and let them know who is and where they stand, that sort of thing. Sure. I always, I've always said that um, Shakespeare uses rhyme for two reasons. One was the heightened thing that I just mentioned earlier. Two, to signify an exit or the end of a scene or the end of a play. And I mean, obviously, it's a little extreme to have the entire last scene of the play in heroic couplets. But it does bring the listeners, it, it, I mean, after a long play, it, it picks up the listener's attention, right? It catches the listener's ear, and it lets them know that maybe, A, something is coming to a close, and, and B, there is something big expected to come after the end of the play. Um, and that's my own personal speculation uh, based on what I know without any additional research about the play itself. Mm -hmm. Um but I, don't know what... I, I think this moment might be, uh, I think it was Shakespeare's way of kind of letting an audience know that Henry is being false, if that makes sense. Hmm. Uh, because a lot of the, I don't know, I feel like a lot of the rhyming verse is when he takes on this rhyming verse 
Henry IV after basically asking people to kill Richard II. And then Richard II comes in dead like he asked, but right. he has to make sure that everyone knows that he didn't want this to happen. Yeah, you know, I so I read a brief summary of this play to, to refresh myself before the show, and what the impression that I got was that he sort of ambiguously wishes for Richard's death around a bunch of people that he might know are willing to do it. Um, but then when they actually do it, he has to make it politically clear that, oh, that's, I, I never asked, I never actually asked these people to do this uh, in order to keep his political reputation clear. Yes. Uh, because Richard is born into the royal line of succession, to kill him is going against God. Right. It has to abdicate his power and acknowledge Bolingbroke as his heir in Act 4, which, I mean, he's basically done with a knife to his back. But so he publicly says, all right, you're king. I'm not anymore. You're my heir. If Richard dies naturally in court, uh, in prison, that's fine. But if he is killed and his body's brought to court, he's stabbed. So it's very clear that he has been killed for Henry. And Exton, I believe, says something along the lines of, I've done what you asked. Uh, that's not okay, and that could cause a revolt. So Henry has to basically say, this isn't what I asked. You killed a king. How could you do this? I'm going to go to Jerusalem now to cleanse my soul. Cool. Yeah, and actually, I just while you were talking about that, I pulled up the exact text. Um, so... Exton enters um, with persons bearing a coffin as a stage direction and says, Great King, within this coffin I present thy buried fear. Herein all breathless lies the mightiest of thy greatest enemies, Richard of Bordeaux, by me, hinder brought, or by me hither brought. Mm -hmm. Henry says, Exton, I thank thee not, for thou hast wrought a deed of slander with thy fatal hand upon my head and all this famous land. And Exton says, From your own mouth, my lord, I did this deed. And Henry uh, responds with a long speech that starts off, They love not poison that do poison need, nor do I thee, though I did wish him dead, I hate the murderer, love him murdered, the guilt of conscience take thou for thy labor, but neither my good word nor princely favor with Cain go wander through the shades of night. So, wow, lots of poetic devices littered throughout there. Um including Anadiplosis, uh, an instance of Anna rhyming couplets throughout, of course, antithesis everywhere. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's basically, he's, he's alleviating himself of all responsibility, which I don't know, seems, I mean, it obviously it's manipulative, but it also seems kind of cowardly, you know? Well, he just took a kingdom by force. I mean, Richard wasn't doing well, and no one wanted Richard to be king, but it still doesn't make it right, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So that's why Henry IV, that play, has a lot of inner turmoil for the king, because he's just dealing with this fact that he basically killed his cousin. Right. Oh, man. Politics in an age where you kill family is such a crazy thing to think about. Um. One other thing I wanted to talk about with Richard II is the character himself, right? This mm -hmm. this character among Shakespeare's kings seems more on 
the irresponsible and greedy side. Um, can you talk to us just a little bit about your, your views on him as a character? Definitely. One of the uh, interesting things about how Shakespeare wrote Richard, it was rumored that Richard did have tendencies towards uh, men, as it were. Hmm. So, but that's never proven. No one knows. <laughs> And he's written a lot like Edward II, in a way. He spends a lot of his money on his favorites, which is written about in the play. Uh, there are all these references from the people who don't like him about how his three uh, advisors, Bushy, Baggett, and Green, are basically feeding off the wealth of the country. And then when his uncle dies, he banishes his cousin, and then his uncle, his cousin's father, dies while his cousin's in banishment, and instead of saying, you know what, when Henry gets back, I'll restore his lands, it'll be fine. He says, you know what, since Henry is banished right now and off on in Europe somewhere, I'm just going to take his inheritance. I'm going to take all his lands and all the money that his father has left behind for him, and I'm going to use it to furnish my Irish wars. <laughs> and he does this right after Gaunt dies. It's really crass. His uncle comes. Uncle York comes in to say, "Your uncle just died," and he goes, "Oh, that sucks." Now we should confiscate all his inheritance, all his lands, and we're going to go to Ireland now and fight a war. So obviously Shakespeare is painting this king in a certain light, in yeah. a certain negative light. At that, who? Was a, uh, the political figure at this time that this play might have been catered to? Do you have any idea? Oh, that's a tricky one. Well, it was Elizabeth. The, uh, it was Elizabeth the first, and this is interesting. This play in fifteen seventy eight, Elizabeth is many times by her advisors referenced as Richard the second, and a lot of people say to Elizabeth, like, be careful how you treat your citizens. Be careful how you treat your advisors. You don't want to end up like Richard II. Hmm. And then when she found out that Richard II was being performed, she said to, in court, it is recorded, she said, do not ye know that I am Richard II? And talks about how this play has been performed in open houses and in the streets 40 times over. And it was actually legitimately used by one of her rivals as a way to try and bring about rebellion against her. Wow. So, it was staged by Lord Essex the night before his revolt in 1601 in February. So not only not only was this play not pandering to the dominant political figure of the time, it was actually alluding to her weaknesses and her character flaws. But the important part of it is, though the plays after Richard II, if you look at the full tetralogy mm -hmm. from Richard II until Richard III, when Richard III is killed by Henry Tudor, her grandfather, it points to the fact that the line was interrupted and right. then things were brought to um, justice. Basically, that line was brought to justice by the murder of Richard III. Sure. And of course, Richard III has its own painting of a very, a very specific painting of a king. Yes. Well, look at that. Um, 
are there any other challenges uh, within the play or within the the staging of the play or the production of the play or research in the play that you you want to tell us about? Well, a lot. It's not staged often, and that's because so much of the wording is rooted in English culture of the early fifteen of the fifteen nineties and the early sixteen hundreds. So there's a whole scene that the BBC cut out from their Hollow Crown series which I think is the funniest scene. Everyone's challenging each other to duels to the death, but they use the word gauge. I throw down my gauge, which is a glove. It's not a common practice. No one Mm. throws down a glove and says, let's fight to the death anymore. So the BBC just cut that. It's really funny. Uh, But it's really difficult for audiences to relate to because we don't have the social and political contexts that they had in in early modern London obviously, and so much of the dialogue is based on law and that uh, the necessity of law in life and how people relate to that and that sort of thing. Right. So it would be like uh, it would be like somebody in uh, the time period 200 years from now looking back at our episodes of SNL and being yeah. like, what are what are, what do all these jokes mean? What do all these references mean? And I mean, certainly there there's a certain amount that an actor and a director can do to bypass that and still make it so that the audience gets what's going on. Um, but there's just a certain number of things that would be lost to 95% of an audience that might be valuable and integral to the play, perhaps. There, There's a great book called Hamlet Without Hamlet that talks about how Hamlet is actually about the fact that Hamlet loses his inheritance. Land was so important back then. Yeah. We just don't have that in our social culture anymore, so we have to find other ways for the place to make sense to us. Well, yeah, that's definitely something that's difficult to work around. But when it is staged, or have you have you ever seen it staged besides in the Hollow Crown? Or I was in it in college. No kidding. Yeah. Uh, I was um, four characters, but it was a good experience. And then I, I saw David Tennant in London as Richard II. Okay. And what what are some of the ways that, that they went about the show? Do you remember anything specific about the production that jumped out at you or fascinated you? Richard, this is actually, this happens a lot. Richard is wears like almost a nightgown throughout the entire play, hmm. barefoot. And I think that's to show that he thinks he's above everyone. A lot of people also put Richard as like a Christ-like figure almost. At the end when he dies, he'll like put his arms out or they, the way they did it in the hollow crown is they put his body in a coffin and shaped his body to look like Christ on the cross. Uh, They usually, what they do, they make the gauges very clear by doing the gloves. Uh, mm, the Richard II that David Tennant did was very original practice, except for the costumes. And then I saw a version of the Globe that was completely original practice. So they did it in James, like Jacobian attire from James I, and added song and dance at the end, like you would see hmm. normally. Wow. So I mean, it is, it is a tricky play, but one of the one of the ways. To do it, and it, it seems like, you know, we modernize Shakespeare a lot nowadays. You know, there are people that set yeah, Romeo and Juliet in modern-day America or or Othello in 
an Italian war in 1900 or World War II or etc etc people set modernize Shakespeare a lot this one seems like the one or one of the ones where it makes the most sense to leave it in the time period in which it was written yes you really have to because of the wording sure uh, with Richard the Third, there is a version out there with Patrick Stewart that's set in World War Two. Yeah, quite good. But with this one, you really do have to keep it in the time period that it is. Otherwise, it feels weird, especially with all of the verse. Isn't there an Ian McKellen Richard the Third too? That's also like in, set in some kind of very specific war. Yeah, yeah, there's also an Ian McKellen Hamlet that I, or no, Macbeth that's on uh, Netflix. I that believe. one's actually, his dagger speech is so simple. He does this weird thing where he pulls his sleeve down at the end and snaps it, and Ian McKellen's a genius. He can do anything. Anyway, back to Richard II. Um, yeah. One more thing that I wanted to talk about with you, because I, I, I know this is kind of uh, your wheelhouse a little bit, is... Uh, the differences in the early publications of Richard III, like the differences between the first and second quarto and the folio and how that comes together, how we can make a complete version out of that that might be more accurate and close to what Shakespeare had originally wrote. Uh, well, the biggest difference is that there there's a folio from 1595. That's the original. Mm -hmm. There is also a folio from 1597, and a folio in 16, uh, and then at least three or four other uh, quartos from 1597 to 1608, because the folio wasn't until 2016-23. So the quartos that are published pre-folio, uh, they're missing half of Act 4. So the moment when Richard gives his crown to Henry is completely cut because it was illegal to show a monarch being dethroned on stage. Mm. So he could not, and without that scene, Act 4 doesn't really make sense. So it's obvious to see that it wasn't added in later. It was just cut by a royal, uh, I, by the, the queen got like her say and everything, and it was performed at court. So obviously she got to make changes. So, yeah, I mean, for anybody listening, that's that's a pretty big difference. right? Well, half an act, yeah. And the moment when King Richard says, I'm no longer king, you are, completely gone. Right, of course. Um, but that was retained in other versions, right? And those After versions were... After 1608. After 1608, it makes a full appearance in all the quartos. Like, 1613, there's a new quarto. And it's in there. And it's in the folio in 1623. So who, like, what was the political shift at the time that caused that law to be abolished? Well, I think when Elizabeth died and James took over, James seems like he was much more flexible with the theater. James made the Lord Chamberlain's men the king's men, for instance. Mm. He basically said, no, no, I'm going to adopt the Shakespeare Theater Company. They're going to be mine. And they actually are, there's record of... Shakespeare and his men as servants during the visit of the Spanish ambassador to court. Wow. There's a painting that they're actually in. So I think when James came to power, he relaxed things just a little bit, probably. 
and didn't feel threatened by the fact that Richard II was losing his crown on stage because James didn't feel like he was Richard II, like Elizabeth felt she was. Mm -hmm. And that was probably the biggest change. Cool. Well, it's time to move on to our next segment in the podcast, and uh, this is my favorite part of every podcast in the past couple of weeks. It's a game which this week is called Curtain Call. And I told I told Elena a little bit about how the game works for the podcast. Um, so she knows what to expect, but she didn't have time to study because I sprung it on her. Um, so basically, what I'm going to do is start listing off characters slowly, all from the same play, from obscure to lead slash starring role, right? Okay. And the, the fewer... Um, guesses it takes you, or the fewer uh, names it takes you to guess the play, the more points you get. For this, so there are going to be five in each, right? And you will get five points if you guess it after the first one, all the way down to zero points if you don't guess it at all. Okay. So let's start with. Well, I'm gonna. No, I'm not even gonna bother putting time on the clock. This isn't a time game. I just decided. Welcome to Pith and Moment, where I make up all the rules all the time spontaneously. So, the first starts with Friar John. I want to say Romeo and Juliet. But... Wow, number one. Okay. That was that was correct. Romeo and Juliet is the answer. All right, moving on. Sir Oliver Martext. Mm -mm. Audrey. Duke Frederick, Jaquies. Ah, oh, I I know what it is, but Rosalind. Oh no no no! Stop! I know what one it is. <laughs> I knew before Rosalind. I just can't think of the name for so as you like it. There I we go. Jacques Jaquies, that it was as you like it. All right. So the next one we have is Pindarus. Uh, Trebonius. No. Octavius. I have a feeling. I would say Julius Caesar. But... That's right. Julius Caesar. So that's... God. What? Three points, I think? Yeah. There we go. Um, Tyrrell. Richmond. I'm going to know this, but I don't know it yet. Give me one more. Buckingham. This could be so many. Like, this could be Lear. But it could be another history. Lady Anne. Oh, that Richard III. Yeah, there we go. All right, next one. Seton. Thane of Lennox. Sorry, say that again? The Thane of Lennox. Oh. Ugh, no. Malcolm. Macbeth? That's right. All right, we have Montano. We have takes place in. Brabantio. Not gentlemen. Nope. We have Emilia. Emilia. Uh, is this Merchant of Venice? No, but there is uh, an Emilia in Merchant of Venice. Am I right? Or there's Where no, there's I... an Emilia in some other play. Um, Gosh, Italy, always Italy. Ah. Uh... 
Oh, it is Italy. Give me one more. Casio. Casio. You know what? I do. What do I do? <laughs> FLO. Yep. There we go. Casio's keyboard. <laughs> um, next one. Peace Blossom. <laughs> Midsummer Night's Dream. There we go. That was fast. All right. Sir Eglamore. No. <laughs> Lucetta or Lucetta. Oh, Lance. Is that Merchant of Venice? No, it's not. Oh, it sounds like it should be. Give me one more. It's also in Italy. We have Lance. We Sorry? have Sylvia. Sylvia? Oh, that's gentlemen. Yep. Two gentlemen. Yeah, Sir Eglamour is the dude in the in the one scene that's like, hey, Sylvia, I'll help you out running into the woods and whatever, because we're really good friends or whatever. Right, yeah, the, a really random character that helps her get away, right? Yep. And that's the fun of this game. Um, next, <sighs> this one's stupid hard, actually. I'm sorry. Bartholomew. Is this uh, Much Ado About Nothing? No, it is not. There is a Bartholomew in that. Is it really? Yes. Ah, I should have done my research a little He's bit like better. The character that gets Claudio and Hero in trouble. What about Tranio? Tranio. That sounds like Taming of the Shrew. That's right. Yep. I so the next some... one, we have Poins, Mistress Quickly. Oh, Mer uh, this is Winter's Tale. Mr. Squiggly is Winter's Tale. Mm, Mr. Squiggly's something else, too. What? Is she in one of the Henrys? Yes, that's right. Henry, uh, the fifth, I'm gonna guess, or fourth, part two? It's Henry the fourth. Yeah, she's in both parts. Okay, because she's in Winter's Tale because Falstaff and Mr. Squiggly were requested by the Queen in a play on St. George's Day. No kidding. Is that why Falstaff's in Merry Wives, too? Yes. Yeah. Uh, oh, no, no. That's the entire reason of Merry Wives is St. George's Day, not Winter's Tale. No. Oh. Winter's Tale's just weird. No, Merry Wives was created because the Queen wanted another Falstaff play. Well, why wouldn't you? You know, Falstaff like, hey, is great. I like him. Let's see more of that guy. <laughs> um, so I have two more, right? And the first one starts with Ursula. Okay, just stop now. Because that could be two. That could be Much Ado About Nothing. All right. Or, no, I'm going to give it Much Ado About Nothing. Yeah, it's Much Ado About Nothing. Yeah. I I played this with some of my friends before just to test the game out, and nobody did this well. So this is kind of awesome. Well, um, I read a lot in London and saw a lot. It's cheap there. Last one, Trinculo. Oh, I feel like I know it already. Oh, there's only, like, one play with Trinculo. Okay, give me one more. Alonso. Mm, I do know this. And it is the one with the twins. It is, uh, all not? No, it's no. not Comedy of Errors, either. Yeah, Comedy of Errors. Twins. Two it's, sets of twins. Nope. You're thinking of Antiphilus, maybe? Or Angelo? No, Angelo is um, Measure for Measure. Well, Angelo is Measure for Measure, but there's also a merchant named Angelo in Comedy of Errors. I'm pretty sure there's a Trinculo in Comedy. No, it's Toronio, isn't it? 
for those listening, I hope this is a great lesson that Shakespeare reuses a lot of names in a lot of different plays. So if you're doing a monologue, specify what play it's from if there's more than one. Like, for example, Claudio, Measure for Measure or Much Ado About Nothing. I'm going to give you one more, and I know you're going to get it from this one. Caliban. Oh, uh, that is... Uh, they're doing it at... Okay, I just studied this, literally, and now the name's not coming. It's on a Tempest. Yep, Tempest. there you go. Done. <laughs> you got 39 points out of a possible bunch of points. So we're going we're gonna to write down that the record for this game, in case I ever play it again... Is held by Elena Robertson, who just balled on that. Um, and it seems like uh, at this point we're about out of time. Um, before we go, Elena, why don't you just tell the listeners uh, your Twitter handle and how they can track your work? Uh, well, it, my Twitter handle is Elena Allegra. So it's at E-L-E-N-A underscore A-L-L-E-G-R-A. And on that, you can find my blog where I post theater articles, theater reviews, and uh, also responses to articles and reviews, as well as a few um, just uh, general things that I've written on Shakespeare and theater. Fun. Um, and of course, uh, Elena is about to, uh, begin her new job at Shakespeare Theater in DC, which is incredible. I'm sure you'll be able to see lots of awesome tweets about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, for myself, my name's Kyle Downing. I'm a Shakespeare coach in New York City. And for more free tips, hints, and material suggestions on all things Shakespeare, you can send me an email at nyshakesguy at gmail.com. You can follow me on various forms of social media. On Twitter, I'm at NYShakesGuy. On Facebook, I'm NYShakesGuy. On Instagram, I'm at NYShakesGuy. And on YouTube, I am Kyle Downing, parentheses, NYShakesGuy. And don't forget to check out my website, www.kyledowning.com slash Shakespeare. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. I'm Kyle Downing. For Elena Robertson, goodbye, and keep up the hard work on your bard work.